Thank you. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, as we continue our study this week on discipleship and what it really means to follow you, I pray that you'd open up our eyes, Lord, and help us this week to understand your word to us in John 13, where you say, love one another, showing yourself to be my disciple. Lord, open up our hearts and our eyes and help us. Uh, can I pray especially for us men, Lord, that uh, you'd help us to truly love our wives as your word tells us to. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. We find that to be a challenge at times, Lord, because we're stubborn and we're hard-hearted. And we ask for your help this morning as we begin this uh, final session on what it means to be your disciple. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. Hope you enjoyed that video. We, uh, on purpose, put the, uh, the noise in the back because that's how life is. You have to, you know, shade out certain things in order to focus. No, just kidding about that. But <clears throat> if you need a Bible, would you raise your hand? The ushers have some Bibles. We're going to pass out and uh, you can follow along in the Bible. You can take that Bible with you. You can give it to someone else uh, that you see this week, whatever you'd like. A few more back there. It's great to have my daughter, Elizabeth, and, <laughs> and her husband, James, here as well. Would you raise your hand? They're visiting from Central Church, and great to have them here. They just live 30 seconds away, so nice that you guys came. Uh, for the past three weeks, we've been talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and we've got this pop culture idea that a disciple is someone who shows up at church once in a while, maybe throws a few bucks in the offering plate, and uh, utters a few words of prayer at dinner time, and you know that's a real follower. And yet we've seen that Jesus had other ideas in mind as to what it means to be in that inner circle. We I don't want to preach all all the sermons over again, but uh, we started off by talking about loving Jesus with all of our heart. Uh, he said, "Love me more than you love your spouse or your children or your." your brothers and sisters, and then we, we looked at what it means to, to carry our cross and to be a crusade and to give up everything we have to become the, uh, the, the, the manager and not the owner. And then we looked at uh, what it means to persevere in the Word. And, and now today we're at John chapter 13, the fifth of Jesus' uh, descriptors of what a disciple looks like. We don't have to guess or wonder, and what, what would it really mean to follow Jesus in a radical way. And, and my prayer is that you would become a radicalized Christian. I don't know if that's a real word or not, but I just made it up. That you would get radicalized in your walk with the Lord by saying, I want to be a disciple according to Jesus' description, not my own idea. And that's what we've been looking at. Here in John 13, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. We, he knows that the end of his earthly ministry is coming. Uh, it was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world, and it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So what he did was uh, he began to wash his disciples' feet. It says in verse 3, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. Jesus knew who he was. He was secure in his identity. He knew who he was, he knew where he was going, he knew where he came from, and because he had this sense of security, he was able to be a servant. And that's certainly true in our life as well. If we, if we know who we are or whose we are, 
if we know where we've been, if we know where we're going, we can serve one another. And that's especially true in the area of marriage and marital love. So Jesus washes his disciples' feet, and then we go down a little bit further to verse 34, where he says, after washing the disciples' feet, he says, now, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. That's characteristic number five right there. Fifth time Jesus said that. If you love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples. Not if you have a bumper sticker that says you're a, or if you have a fish decal on your bumper sticker. That's not the sign of a disciple, right? Jesus said, by this, all men will know you're my disciples. If you love one another. And I'd like to take a look this morning for a few minutes at the area of life that I think is probably not only the most challenging, but the most telling of our ability to really love somebody, and that is in the context of marriage and marital love. (laughs) Now, there's no greater test of one's discipleship than marriage. Can you say amen to that? Because you can have casual acquaintances, you can have friends who see you on occasion, maybe see you at your best. But marriage is like a mirror, you know. It shows you what's going on inside like nothing else. If you want to really know if you're a disciple or not, just get married. <laughs> that, that, that spouse is like a mirror, and what you see in them somehow is reflected, reflective of you. And uh, it's easy to love strangers and friends, But the dailiness of marriage and family means that we are seen and known for our true colors. And sometimes that can be a little bit scary. In fact, I feel like I have to sort of issue a disclaimer here, which is not really good for your credibility as a speaker. But if you'll allow me to be genuine and uh, and transparent, I have not mastered all of this material that I want to share with you this morning, okay? I am a fellow traveler along this road with you. Uh, I thought, well, maybe I better wait until I have mastered all this stuff before I preach it. And then I got to thinking about what I preached in the last few weeks, you know, giving up everything you have and carrying your cross and being a crusade and putting Jesus first and persevering, being a serious student of the Word. And I thought, well, I guess that would apply to all these messages. I mean, it it has been gut-wrenching for me to prepare these messages uh, on discipleship. I don't know if it's had nearly the impact on you, maybe a little, I hope, But I have to say that uh, I am, well, let me describe myself this way, okay? I am a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. (laughs) Can we just start off from that point there? I'm one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And if you'll accept me for that, then we can go on. The video clip that we just saw tells us that the purpose of marriage is to display the image of God to the watching world. Uh, Kiki and I were at a marriage uh, ceremony a couple weeks ago. In fact, Libby was the uh, maid of honor. And they had this cord of three-strand ceremony. You've probably seen that before, taken from uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. And the, st- the strands are intertwined, representing God and the bride and the groom and the intertwining of their lives and their spirits together. And that is very true. In Christian marriage, it's It's more than just two individuals coming together. We believe that Christian marriage is about the union of one man and one woman and 
God involved himself. The Bible teaches that God performs a miracle in our marriage, uniting us together in a covenant relationship with him. And the cord of three strands is a symbol of that sacred union that was created on your wedding day. So in order to understand this message this morning, we have to agree together that marriage is sacred. This was God's idea and that he wants to participate in the dailiness of our marriage with us. Uh, I saw a movie one time, I'm not necessarily recommending it, but uh, there's a movie called The Notebook. And there was one phrase in that movie, most of you have probably seen it and cried your way through it, especially the ladies perhaps. But there's a scene in that movie where uh, the main character who's trying to win this, this woman over to marry him, he says to her, so it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. We're going to have to work at this every day. But I want to do that because I want you. Most women would probably respond pretty good to that, huh? I want all of you forever, every day. You and me, every day. <laughs> and now this morning, I have to admit that this is a, this is a very practical message. You know, uh, look at the, at like the book of Romans. Paul starts off very theological, you know, the grace of God and the lostness of man. And, and then he starts getting very practical. And, and I think that's our pattern here. We've been theological. Now today, we're going to be extremely practical. In fact, this is a Monday through Friday sermon. Okay, this sermon this morning won't do you much good on Sunday, at least Sunday morning, all right? Probably as soon as you leave here, it will. But this is what I call a Monday through Friday message. It'll do you more good at home than it will here at church. In fact, where is the church, really? Our home is our first church. If you're a husband, if you're a father, you are a pastor. You're the pastor of your own home. You're the priest in your own home, a bridge builder between earth and heaven. So, uh, you know, guys, I just had an idea. You might want to get out a piece of paper and a pencil and write some of these things down. If you want to be a good priest, if you want to be a good pastor in your home, I think this is good stuff to write down. What I want to share with you this morning is called the seven glues. Glues, G-L-U-E-S, not clues, glues for intimacy in marriage. Jesus said, love one another, showing yourself to be my disciple. And nowhere is that ability shown better than in the context of marriage. If we want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, men, we've got to know how to love our wives and women. Wives, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we've got to learn how to love our husbands. I'm thankful to a fellow uh, Campus Crusade staff member named Jim Grunseth who shared with me some of these ideas that I'm basically improving upon and sharing, digesting, sharing with you today. The seven glues for your marriage. Are you ready for this? Let's buckle our seatbelts, okay? This is practical stuff, but some of it is not easy. So guys, if you want to win some points with your wife today, get out a piece of paper and a pencil now and write these down. You're going to need this tomorrow morning, I assure you. The first glue to preserving and sustaining and cultivating intimacy and uh, affair-proofing your marriage, divorce-proofing your marriage. The first glue is, now this is deep, this is deep, all right? You see it? Hold hands everywhere. Nobody's jumping up and down. <laughs> but it is important, isn't it? This is very practical stuff. Some people think this is maybe shallow or a little silly. Well, I don't, I don't think it is. It doesn't matter what they think, okay? It works, guys. 
I believe it's good for couples to hold hands when they're walking, when they're shopping, when they're at church, when they're at a funeral, whatever, wherever you're at, all right? Uh, Kiki was here at the first service, but she's taught me the value of this. When you hold hands with your wife, and I know sometimes for guys we don't really like to do that, it's kind of uncomfortable, but when you hold hands with your wife, you're telling the world the following. Number one, you are in love. That's good, huh? Number two, God was right in bringing you together. Number three, you're fulfilling God's plan by filling each other's gaps. Anybody have any gaps around here? Anybody besides me? You need each other's strengths and weaknesses. And finally, you want to honor God by your commitment to each other. You're saying all that by holding each other's hands. Now, that's not even all that difficult. We're going to start off with an easy one, and it's going to get tougher from here. Ecclesiastes 4 says two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend, spouse, can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. So, glue number one, hold hands. Number two, this is kind of practical, okay? Have the same bedtime. (laughs) Ouch! Anybody else uh, feel the pain of that one? Yeah, I can see that. This is not easy if one spouse is dead tired by 8 o'clock, as is the case in my home. By the way, this message is so much easier to preach when my wife's not here. (laughs) Because I know myself, and I know my weaknesses. I don't know why I said that. Scratch that from the recording. Did you do that? Uh, If one is a night owl and the other wants to go to bed early, you know, how do you fulfill that? Well, my recommendation is figure out a compromise. Maybe maybe not 8 p.m., but maybe not midnight. How about 10 p.m. as a compromise? Or if one wants to sleep right away and the other needs to rewind, maybe you can get a little reading light or one of those masks, not terribly attractive, you know, sleep-eye mask, (laughs) or maybe some earplugs. But the idea here is that if the devil has a middle name, it is isolation. Nothing good af- happens after midnight anyhow. You know, nothing good on TV after midnight anyhow. Going to bed together at the same time promotes oneness, togetherness, and marital love. Anybody shouting hallelujah yet? That's number two in loving one another. The third glue, the third glue to cultivate and sustain intimacy in marriage, qualify that in marriage, number three is Cuddle pray at bedtime. <laughs> that sounds really kind of mushy feely, doesn't it? I know it's it's hard even for me to say that, but there's something of eternal value in what I'm about to say here. Cuddle pray at bedtime. Intimacy in marriage has everything to do with prayer. And would would you accept this, husbands and wives? The most intimate thing you will ever do in marriage, including the physical relationship, is praying together. You buy that with me? That when when a husband and wife are, are open and transparent in the presence of God, that has greater glue and greater intimacy than any other aspect of the marital relationship. Couples that sincerely pray to the Lord out loud together on a daily basis, remain strong in their love for God and each other, and they will finish well in life. Research has shown that 95% of Christian couples do not pray out loud together. And I know I'm stepping on some toes here because we're probably part of that 95%. 
And yet, this is a challenge. I hope you're writing these down, guys. Uh, Cuddle prayer is when the husband wraps his arms around his wife, or the wife wraps her arms around her husband, and they each pray a short prayer together like this. Lord, thanks for this day and your blessings. Please watch over us, our home, our kids, and their homes. Thanks for, put your spouse's name in there, and please bless her or him tonight. I mean, it's not, you know, Lord, we thank thee for the multitude of thy blessings. It's not a King James kind of theological prayer. It's a simple expression of thanks to God for his blessings and for your spouse. And then the wife would pray a similar prayer. And then as so often happens, each spouse kind of gravitates towards their side of the bed. They turn over and they fall asleep. (laughs) Um, But anyhow, cuddle prayer creates spiritual intimacy. This is the covering for emotional and physical intimacy. This is why Satan attacks first and foremost at this level. He knows that if a Christian married couple prays out loud together, much of his wicked efforts will fail. All right, now we're getting getting deep. Spiritual warfare takes place primarily in your bedroom, between your ears. And when you pray out loud together, you defeat the forces of Satan. He and his demons hate it, and they tremble when you pray out loud together. He cannot read your mind. Satan cannot read your mind. But he has to listen to your voice. If you're drifting from the Lord, you'll find it difficult to pray out loud with your spouse. Even as Pastor Ryan did this morning, get the Word of God out. Quote the Word of God. Pray the Word of God over each other. Uh, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. Maybe put the name of your spouse in there. Uh, Name of your spouse shall not lack. And just personalize the Word of God. Plead the blood of Jesus over your spouse and over their soul and their spirit and their body. Because spiritual intimacy then creates emotional intimacy. If you're honest and humble before God, if you possess a clean and a forgiving heart, God will begin to bless your emotional relationship with you and your mate. I have a friend who, uh, this couple friend of ours, and they live by what they call the 10-minute tiff rule. (laughs) I really like this too. So if you and your spouse have a a spat or a, a heated argument, anybody here? Admit to that, liars. Uh, agree that you will come together and in 10 minutes you'll solve your spat. In 10 minutes. That's called the 10-minute tiff rule. Sometimes maybe you need a little time to, to cool down or collect yourself or get your thoughts kind of slowed down and experience that gentle nudging of the Holy Spirit. But I want to challenge you to accept the 10-minute tiff rule, that we will not allow anger and bitterness to go on and on for days or even weeks on end. Uh, at our house, uh, Kiki and I have often said, you are not my enemy, you know, <laughs> or we are on the same team to remind ourselves that we are in this together and that uh, 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 grudges that are cultivated will produce anger. And do you know what the cause of depression is? Depression is anger turned inward. 99% of the time, people who are depressed are angry people who have turned that anger inward, and that then creates isolation as well. Ephesians chapter 4 says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Now, let's get this. Let's nail this one down right here. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, 
that it may benefit those who listen. Think about this in the context of your marriage. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Guys, when we're at odds with our wife, we're grieving the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger. Get it out like it's leprosy. Get rid of it. Brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Now this is a tall order, I'll admit. We're getting real practical here today. But this is the kind of stuff that will create godliness and, and rejoicing in our home. And physical intimacy. Now I got the guy's attention. Huh? Physical intimacy follows on the heels of spiritual and emotional intimacy. And it's a way of saying thank you to God for the spiritual and, and emotional intimacy that you have. So that's point number three. Cuddle pray at bedtime. Am I getting too deep for anybody here? We're all right? Okay. Let's go on to the fourth one then. The fourth glue to keep you growing together instead of drifting apart is have a weekly date. Anybody practice that so far? I know that's maybe not a new thought you do. You get, Okay, very good. Have a weekly date. This is plain and simple. Plan and have a weekly date. Maybe go to your favorite restaurant. Take a walk. Ride bikes. Go sailing. Uh, laugh and talk with each other as you do that. Uh, the highlight of my summer so far has been uh, over the 4th of July, Kiki and I went sailing. We have a little uh, beginner sailboat, and we went up to Fish Creek. And as we pulled into the marina, these dark thunderclouds rolled in, and it began to, to blow like, like a tornado was coming, actually. The boat was rocking around, and, and uh, it started pouring rain, and we closed up the hatch, and we sat in the boat, and we talked for about three hours, just not anything terribly serious, but just had a great conversation. And I thought, well, if that's what it takes, you know, in the boat with the hat shut and the rain clouds and the wind, well, whatever, whatever it takes, you know. But the idea is that we have a weekly date where we're talking and focusing just on each other. Uh, this friend of mine has five children. They've been married for 17 years. And he said that they have never had an overnight getaway for just the two of them in 17 years of marriage. And I said, well, that's, that's a great example of being good parents, but they were toast. They're, they were exhausted. They were snipping at each other. Uh, because of their love for their kids, which, of course, is a great thing, they became what I would call parent. Uh, they have a parent-centered marriage, a parent-centered marriage, where it's all about the kids. What I would encourage is that we would have a marriage-centered parent. Okay, well, yes, we are parents, but the first and primary relationship is between the parents. When I was in Bible college, I had a marriage and family class, and somebody raised their hand one day and said to the professor, it was kind of a trick question, I think, but the professor was not tricked. The, the student said, if your child came up to you and said, who do you love more, mommy or me? What would you say, Dad? And the professor said, instantly I would say to my child, I love your mother more. Because that creates this sense of security in a child. That's called having a marriage-centered parent and not a parent-centered marriage. What often happens in life is that Dad gets caught up in work and in hobbies and Mom is, is consumed with the beloved children. And pretty soon the job and the kids get most of the attention, but the marriage slowly dissolves. When the kids finally leave the nest, mom and dad look at each other like, like strangers, and divorce can result. 
But we must decide with an unyielding resolve to become marriage-centered. If we do not cultivate and tend to our marriage like, like a good gardener cultivates his garden, weeds of isolation, disinterest, and affairs can result. So the fifth glue after the weekly date, the fifth glue, and this one is even tougher. If you thought the first four were hard guys, hold on for this one. The fifth glue is called return blessings. Return blessings. What does that mean? I would have to say that nothing is more repulsive to one's flesh than to show kindness and favor towards someone who has hurt or betrayed us. Would you agree to me? Someone does something hurtful or, or uh, betrays you. The Bible tells us that we are not to return insult for insult or curse for curse, but we are to return that hurt with a blessing. This Fifth glue can be a tough one, but this is what disciples do. Payback and revenge is the theme of movies, but it's not the theme of the kingdom of God. It tells us in 1 Peter 3, finally all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, live, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Something I learned from my, my boss. He said, if you're out in a, in a meeting with somebody and they come at you in a hostile or aggressive manner, he says, don't return back to them in that same spirit, but come back at them in a different spirit. If they come at you with insult, then you come at them with blessing. Take the high road. And I, I've tried to practice that in my own uh, business, in my own family life, in my own marriage and it can be challenging, but it's what disciples do. So the next time somebody comes at you, like maybe your spouse, with an angry or a critical tone, come back at them with a loving and compassionate and gentle tone. They'll probably fall over dead. Then when you pick them up and revive them, tell them, I'm trying to be a disciple and love you as Jesus tells me I should. So it always boils down to this. Will you obey God or will you obey your flesh? Some mates will return insults with yelling or, or throwing things or even physical violence. And others retaliate with the silent treatment, maybe go off to the bar or on a spending spree. Other mates return offense in a, in a quiet, delayed manner. They appear forgiving. And maybe a week or a month or a year later, they would inflict their strike when least expected. Like, sorry, honey, you can't go, go hunting this year. I'm just not feeling well. That was just something stored up. I see I'm striking some familiar chords here. All right. Or, or let's say that the husband comes home and he's exhausted and uh, he's distracted from work and he just comes in the door and ignores you as his wife and he plops down on the couch and flips on the remote and, and uh, is just sitting there sulking. And, you know, the natural response from the wife might be something like, well, bucko, two of us can play this game, you know. So you begin to sort of sulk and, and uh, come back at him with the same spirit that he came home with, and that is isolation. Or you could obey God and receive a blessing by maybe going into the refrigerator and getting a soda or, or uh, some chips and saying, well, sit up a little bit, let me rub your back. Or, that's what it means to bless your mate. It's exactly what it means. Showing grace and mercy to your mate. Grace is giving to someone that which he or she does not deserve. 
Mercy is withholding that which he or she deserves. We need to give grace and mercy. When you're in that moment of difficulty and conflict, put your left hand on your spouse's shoulder. That's grace. I'm not... I'm giving you something you don't deserve. And then put your right hand on your spouse's other shoulder and say, I'm offering you mercy. I'm not giving you something that you probably deserve, like like maybe a return insult. Grace and mercy, and then when you have your hand on their shoulders, pull them towards you and embrace them. And return insult with blessing. Cover over offenses with love. Learn to bless your mate. Don't allow conflicts to go unresolved. That's the devil's foothold. You will get a uh, a stronghold of the enemy in your soul and in your spirit when you allow a conflict to go unresolved. Pursue the offended person, admit your failure, and request their forgiveness. And the, the stronghold is broken over that offense. But without that, isolation and despair comes in. So that's number five. Return Blessings. Number six, the sixth glue. Are you still with me? Hope I haven't alienated all the guys yet, okay? I'm a traveler with you on this road, okay? We're learning together. I hope you're writing these things down, guys and gals. The sixth glue is to establish talk times. Establish talk times. This is basic stuff. This is important stuff. It's vital to establish regular, disciplined talk times during your marriage. For some couples, maybe once a week, or others, maybe every day. I, I heard of a couple that when they came home from work, they would light a candle, a small candle, and let that burn for 30 minutes. And while that candle was burning, they were just focused on one another. Tell me what the high point of your day was. Tell me what the low point of your day was. In fact, I have a, a couple of suggestions here for talk time questions and ideas, all right? Thinking back, what was the most uplifting, memorable time of our relationship? Oh, here's another great one. When do you feel loved, valued, or respected by me the most? Or how about this? What's your greatest wish, dream, hope? Notice these are open-ended questions. These are not yes or no. You know, how are you? I'm fine type questions. What area of my life do you see as needing work? Oh, boy. (laughs) That's a tough one, you know. Be ready for that one. What's one thing you'd want God to do for our relationship? What's the most discouraging thing about your day? What's the most encouraging thing about your day? Talk time questions. So glue number six is establish talk times. I I heard of a couple that uh, would have their talk time, and they were kind of getting into it, and they had seven kids, and the kids were upstairs, and they were screaming, and they said, uh, Mom, Dad, little Billy's hurt. And then the response was, well, is there any blood? No. Well, then they just kept on talking, you know. Don't let things interrupt and interfere with the quality time that you need with one another as husband and wife. Glue number seven. Glue number seven. Serve in church together. Serve in church together. This this is important stuff. I'm not saying a husband and wife have to be together 24-7. That probably wouldn't be uh, the greatest. But to serve in church together in some capacity is great glue for a marriage. Uh, This past week, Kiki's been wonderfully supportive and allowing me the time in my office to, to study and pray and get ready for these messages. And, and I was thinking maybe in the future she'll, she'll teach a class and I could be her assistant. So we're doing that together as well. And strive to serve together in, a, in some sort of ministry here at the church. It's great glue. Those are the seven glues of a, of a growing, cultivating marriage. Uh, the story is told of 
the Apostle John, who we're reading here in the Gospel of John. This is found in the history of the early church, a book written by a guy named Josephus, which took place at about the same time as Jesus' earthly ministry. And he wrote a story about the, uh, about the Apostle John, who was about 85 years old at the time of this story. And he was uh, living about 30 miles away from the local group of believers that were at Ephesus, one of the churches that John planted in his time. And you remember John, he was the closest disciple to Jesus. He's the one that Jesus gave to Mary at the cross. He's the one that, that, kneel, that uh, laid on the, on the chest of, of Jesus at the Last Supper. He was kind of the inner circle. He was the closest one to Jesus. And the story's told that uh, the elders in Ephesus wanted John to come and preach at their house church. So they sent the elders 20 miles, put John up on their shoulders, because he was 85 and couldn't really walk, and they walked back to the house church where they were all waiting with with rapt attention to, to hear the wisdom that John, having spent three years as the closest disciple with Jesus, what would this sermon be like? So they put John down, and time came for him to speak, and he sauntered over to, to one side of the room, and he began his message, and he said, Love one another. All right, great. They're, they're all the time, three years, that John spent in the presence of Jesus, he, he boiled down his teaching to those three words. What love, what another. He kind of went to the other side of the room, and he, he continued his message, and he said, love one another. Everybody's like, all right, John, good, good preaching. Keep going. Tell us something else. Tell us more. What else did you learn in three years of being in the physical presence of Jesus Christ, the now ascended Son of God? And he, he went back to the to the outside of the room, and he, and he repeated himself for the third time, and he said, love one another. And then he sat down, and he said, that's it. In three years of being in Jesus' presence, that is the greatest thing I could possibly tell you that I learned. Love one another. Je- Jesus said, showing yourself, love one another, showing yourself to be my disciple. Now, the sixth characteristic that we're going to cover here, the sixth characteristic, quickly, because our time is slipping away, John 15, 8. If you have your Bible or want to look up at the screen, John chapter 15, verse 8. Finally, Jesus talks about bearing fruit and talk about the vine and the branches. It says, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. What does it mean? To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, it means to bear much fruit. Not bear a little fruit, but to bear much fruit. I think that's a bit of a summary statement of all the things we've been looking at for the last three weeks. I want to end up in heaven with hundreds and thousands of people around me that I led to Christ. And not only people that I led to Christ, but I was able to disciple these people so well that they led other people to Christ. In fact, if you want to know how good of a discipler you are, don't look at the people you led to Christ. Look a generation past them to the people they led to Christ. You will know how good of a discipler you are, not by looking at your disciples, but by looking at their disciples. That's how you tell how good of a discipler you are. How do I bear fruit? Well, Galatians 5, 22 through 25, talks about bearing fruit. It talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, 
Uh, self-control. I missed one. Faithfulness. Thank you. Someone there reads their Bible. <laughs> and I want to end by a reference to Ephesians chapter 2. This really is a great summary verse of what it means to be a disciple. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are called to be God's masterpiece. It says you were created to be God's masterpiece. We were created in the image of God to be His masterpiece. We've talked about, remember the five fingers? Bible, prayer, worship, fellowship, witness, all that combining together to make us disciples who are called God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. That word masterpiece from Ephesians 2.10 in the original language of Greek actually is poema. We are created to be God's poema, where we get the word poem from. A poem is the highest expression of someone's creativity and oftentimes the highest expression of their love. So as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we are God's masterpiece. But for many of us, when we see ourselves, we don't see a masterpiece. We see something much less than that. We, we see inadequacy. We see failure. We see our past mistakes. We see condemnation and shame and guilt. And, and our mind is like a canvas. If you can imagine an artist's canvas, a, a, a white canvas. And when we're born, as we go through life, we give out paintbrushes to different people, like parents and teachers and coaches and pastors and friends. And everybody that you come in contact with, you actually give a paintbrush and they put something of a, of a portrait on that canvas. Well, the trouble is that as we go through life, sometimes people tell us lies. Sometimes Teachers or coaches or even parents or friends will tell us lies, things about ourselves that are not true. Like you can't do this or you're inadequate or you shouldn't be able to do that because you're not smart enough or, or strong enough or all kinds of lies. And what a disciple does is takes back the paintbrush from the people who told them lies and takes that paintbrush and puts it in the hand of Jesus and says, Jesus, now you tell me who I am. You tell me what it means to be a real disciple. Putting you first, carrying my cross, giving up everything I have, becoming a manager and not an owner, persevering in the Word, loving one another, as we talked about today, and bearing much fruit. So I'm going to ask Jesus to destroy that old canvas picture, and I'm going to give him the, 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 the brush I'm going to take that paintbrush and I'm going to put it in the hands of Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, create a new picture in my mind. Create a new self-image of what it means to be a masterpiece. I have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for me to do. That's what discipleship is all about. I just want to leave this blessing with you today. And we would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to shine your face upon us and be gracious to us and give us peace. We want to be your disciple with all of our heart and soul and mind and spirit. Lord, that's our number one job description, is to be your disciple. Make your face shine upon us and bless your people, I pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen.